Hello and welcome to today's webinar, Building a Sustainable Resilient Future Through Trusted Spaces. My name is Charlotte Brody. I'm the Global Head of Marketing for the Built Environment here at BSI, and I'm delighted to introduce Kate Field, our Head of Health, Safety and Wellbeing. Kate is our expert. Uh, she drives our global strategy for creating a safer and healthier workplace. And as an ambassador for cultural change, she puts well-being, equality, safety and health at the forefront. Kate inspires colleagues and stakeholders globally to make a difference. And with over 20 years industry experience in occupational health, safety and well-being, Kate is a recognised consultant, trainer, lecturer and speaker. And I'm also delighted that we have the chance to record a few observations from Richard White, Global QHSE Director, GWS Local at CBRE Global Workplace Solutions on today's topic. And Richard is responsible for creating and implementing the Global QHSE strategy and supporting programmes, working with his leadership team and safeguarding 29,000 employees across an 800 plus client base. So moving on to today's agenda, I'll introduce you very briefly to what we do at BSI and then we'll share the recording which was made especially for today's session and then I will hand over to Kate for her observations on hindsight and looking to the future before we briefly look at how we can help um, and then we will finish off with our Q&A session. So to explain a little bit about BSI, um, you might be familiar with BSI as the UK's national standards body. We have a strict governance around how we operate our business streams and we are incorporated by Royal Charter. Our portfolio is extensive and we support clients globally through standards, providing and shaping standards, whether these are British or international standards or publicly available specifications, and offering technical support and guidance from our knowledge solutions business. And we provide assurance, training and certification services to help you embed and demonstrate best practice through the adoption of standards. And we also provide consultancy services in some instances. Moving on, our purpose is inspiring trust for a more resilient world. We help to shape and guide innovation through improving and standardising business processes, products and services to enable advancement. We are independent and free from any outside influence, as all the profit is reinvested back into BSI to help us to continue to support and drive further change. And we are here to help by serving our clients and finding new ways of delivering services to support industry, focused on enabling organisations to become resilient, whether you design, build, operate, remediate, or decommission assets in the built environment. So now we come to our poll, um, and we thought a good place to start really would be to invite you to share with us um, what your area of focus is within your organisation. And please remember to step out of full screen mode if this helps you to answer the poll, which is anonymous in session today. So please let us know what your main area of responsibility is, uh, facilities management, occupational health and safety, um, human resources, business continuity, or is it something else? And uh, whilst I'm waiting for those results to come in, um, just to let you know that there will be some very useful resources as well as today's recording um, that will be made available to you after the session, um, as long as the survey is completed um, right at the very end. So do look out for that um, at the end of the session today. So if I could just ask for those results to be shared. Um, let's have a look and see. So we have um, the highest answer is 50% uh, of you um, have, are involved in facilities management. And then we have an even split between occupational health and safety and something else. So thank you very much for, uh, for sharing those with me. Um, and uh, it's great to have uh, so many people from, from different um, areas of responsibility um, joining us today. So I'm just now going to, um, it's now time for um, Richard White uh, to, uh, to share his thoughts 
from CBRE Global Workplace Solutions. So if I could ask for um, our video to be launched, please. Thank you very much. So Richard, thank you for joining us uh, today. And uh, to kick things off, um, would you like to tell us a little bit about uh, what CBRE does, um, where you're located around the world, and what kind of um, work, buildings, projects uh, is CBRE involved in? Thanks, Charlotte. Great to be here. And CBRE, Global Workplace Solutions, Enterprise and Local, um, provide FM and project management services to a range of clients, both large and small globally, covering a whole variety of sectors, um, retail, office, data centres, banks, uh, manufacturing, laboratories, uh, healthcare, pharma, so really broad selection of, of clients. Um, and we are client focused, um, but we are um, set up around three core regions, um, the Americas, EMEA, where I'm based in London, or in fact, you're from home currently, and our APAC region. So three core um, uh, regions globally. Um, my part of business is local. We provide um, hard services led um, engineering um, services to a, to a range of clients. And those projects can include effectively um, HVAC maintenance, heat lighting, water management, um, space location, you know, a broad range of services, typically hard services led to ensure that our clients' buildings and operations function effectively for our clients. Wow, gosh, a lot going on there. Um, and no doubt some really interesting projects and uh, operations that you, you run. And considering, you know, all of those different uh, locations and uh, the kind of work that you, you do, um, how did your organisation respond to COVID-19 and the pandemic when it first emerged? Thanks, Charlotte. I think we, um, you know, being a global company and being based across, across three key regions, we were able to look in the situation east to our colleagues in APAC and get a real sense of what, what they were going through. Um, maybe therefore what's coming our way in, in, in Europe, um, you know, at some stage in the future. And we had our first preparation calls in January, um, really in response to, to what our APAC colleagues were seeing. And I think given the APAC um, history of managing very well, you know, previous um, smaller pandemics, you know, they were well prepared to, to deal with the early stages of, of, of this one. We could look at what they were doing, start to absorb some lessons learned from those early days, Charlotte, and really get our our, our programs, our practices in place, you know, ready for, um, you know, the, the arrival of the pandemic within the EMEA region, particularly at that stage. Um, and, you know, I, I looked at it upon, you know, really three core themes, um, monitoring and preparation, you know, looking at our colleagues at APAC, getting ourselves stood up for, for the future. Um, implementation, so putting in place quickly, um, from my perspective, a whole management system around COVID response. So, putting into play our business continuity plans, um, creating standards for, for COVID management to support our people at our client sites, including um, building closure, exposure notification, cleaning standards, um, risk management, risk assessment, um, projects guidance, um, home working in due course, safe working practices for our, our operational staff, but equally as well, working with um, a whole range of colleagues from different functions to really make sure that we were prepared for what was coming our way. Um, looking at supply chain resilience, for example, making sure where our suppliers can support us going through and they were resilient in terms of their of their programs. Um, working with our HR colleagues clearly around some employee relations um, activities, but also data privacy. And it became very clear very early on this was a game changer. So, yes, respect data privacy considerations, but really start to look at the new world and balance those two risks, Charlotte, and make sure that we can do all we have to do to look after our people. And I think the third stage of the, of the programme, so first monitoring and um, preparation, second implementation, thirdly was around review. So what have we got? Is it working? How do we adjust it? What do our clients need from us going forward? But equally as well, looking to cope with the whole raft of guidance coming out. So WHO guidance that was changing, um, you know, looking at, at government advice that was changing almost on a weekly basis, but also client needs. And that review was ongoing and is today. So I think that that three pronged approach put us in good stead to really manage, I hope, successfully through 
yeah, that first phase of the, of the pandemic from February last year. I'm assuming that you would need you you needed to be agile. You know, the the agility of your um, organisation and you know your to meet your client requirements. Um, I imagine that would have been quite a critical uh, a critical step or, or ability in in all of those all of those stages. Would that be a, a fair observation? No, absolutely. I think um, you know that, that that first stage was exciting in some respects, but also very, very, um, very busy, clearly. But we moved on fairly quickly to looking at the future, looking for reopening. We took a view clearly in, in late, late, mid to late April. I think just after the Easter weekend that we get out of this yeah, at some stage in the summer, things would drop down and then the world would start to reopen. So worked collectively across all three core regions, Charlotte, to put together, you know, authoritative guidance for our clients on reopening the world, we called it. And that was launched in, in late spring, early summer, getting back to what we hope would be a new normal situation, welcoming our clients and our colleagues back to the workplace. And of course, we know that, that things didn't quite pan out in that respect. But certainly that balance between immediate focus on the impact, plus also what next was the future hold, I think yeah, were core lessons for us in terms of our success yeah, through those, those, those first few weeks. Uh, it, it sounds to me like you are really talking about true resilience because the ability to balance you know, the immediate uh, risks um, and to balance those with what may be coming over the horizon, um, I, would, I would assume would have played quite a, an important part in that. It's lessons learned and then looking out beyond the future. Were there any um, surprises uh, in how you adapted? Anything that you, you felt um, perhaps uh, some you know, innovative responses or, or different ways of doing things that, uh, that you have observed as a, as a result of this, this situation? Any surprises? Good question. I think we were too busy to be surprised, Charlotte. I think um, on a personal note, I found out my son could cut my hair for me. Um, obviously not, not very well, but, uh, but yeah, that was a personal surprise. I think, you know, um, being more serious, I think, I think your point about adaptability was, was key here. So were we surprised? I don't, I don't think we were as such. Um, did we have all the answers? No, we didn't. Absolutely. And, and nobody did. Nobody does. That was clear from a global response. But, but I think we pride ourselves on, um, being flexible, being adaptable, um, responding to our clients' needs very quickly, looking to get ahead of our clients and, and working out what they're going to need in the future. You know, you know, working out, working to to understand what they were going to be needing from us, you know, going forward. So that that flexibility and adaptability, I think, was 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 key here. And you hear me use those words, I'm sure, a lot through this this conversation. But I think, you know, probably probably from a personal note, we were getting prepared for this from from February. Um, you know, and it was it was reassuring to see a population on mass um, leave offices and start to work from home and start to make greater use of technology. Um, and here we are now, clearly having a, this conversation yeah. via via Zoom. Um, and and yeah, that that ability to grasp technology was was great for us. If you said to me in January 2020, would you would you do an audit using FaceTime? I just said no, of course you wouldn't. But but we did, and we recognised Charlotte very quickly that we had to keep the show on the road. And so for those people that would normally be in office but couldn't, how could we do our jobs, you know, via technology? And so we began to very quickly, um, you know, put in place a remote auditing program, I think pretty well. It doesn't always substitute face-to-face um, site visits, but you could you could choose and, and work, work on a methodology to actually carry out an audit remotely, and that worked very well. And I think, to be fair, again, I can recall a conversation with your colleagues in April last year from BSI, how would we go through our, our normal cycle of audits with you, for example, remotely? And that was put in place in May last year. That worked very well. So great examples of, I think, you know, using technology to, to carry on as normal. But I think as well, as a leadership team, um, we were meeting as a minimum three times a week in those early COVID, COVID days, sometimes more, but as a minimum three times a week. And we could, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and we could we could um, see an issue or challenge on a Monday, discuss um, how to fix that that challenge on a Monday, Wednesday, report back with implementation. So, okay, where is it? What is it? How's it going? And by Friday, 
pick on, on results of that. And so almost by the following Monday, we, we'd done it, we had results, we could move on. And so great to see that, you know, the team working together, staying focused and, and looking after our, our, our clients, I think, here. Um, and also, think, yeah, that personal touch, we are a people company. And so we recognised very early on that COVID had a particular impact on certain parts of the population, those with underlying health concerns. So a very, very quick focus on looking at those people, taking them out of the of the workplace respectfully, looking after them, okay, shielding them, keeping them away from physical workplace. Well, don't forget, many of our staff um, were looking after key activities for our client sites, and so carried on working all the way through, but not if they had underlying health concerns. And, and for example, the um, president of our UK business would would know who those people were and took it upon himself to, to personally contact those people via a phone call to make sure they were okay during this time. So, you know, real personal touches. We are a, we are a people company, and I think that's shone through, you know, from the start of the pandemic all the way through until today. That links in um, with the well-being, um, you know, area, looking after our, our people um, or our communities uh, and, and making sure that that aspect which perhaps sometimes people don't always want to talk about is, um, you know, is, is taken care of and, and looked after. Agreed. Yeah, absolutely. So you were talking about, you know, an, a, a, a challenge that was recognised on a maybe on a Monday. Um, you uh, implemented, made some changes and then you've looked at how you were um, resolving it by the by the end of the week. Um, yeah. So I guess, would you say that that was kind of emergency action, action planning in, you know, actually in reality yeah i think i think it was but we had you know we have got we had um bcps in place so plans were in place i think um fair to say charlotte that the, the size scale and speed of the pandemic probably um you know tested our bcps to the limit and maybe beyond in certain situations but again i go back to flexibility um being able to adapt and recognizing quickly what was required and putting plans in place and so Again, to, to reiterate, yeah, many of our employees you know, um, provide technical services to, to clients um, and many of those employees carried on working all the way through. And so we had to, to look after those people very, very quickly, make sure that they were safe going into those workplaces and weren't at risk. Um, we were planning you know, um, split team situations for our offices, for example. Um, talked about A teams and B teams. And I felt that you know, if you were part of a B team, probably a bad message so we, we turned it to, to green, green and gold teams to allow you know some separation of, of core teams in, in core offices you know, before shutdown we were looking again in, in late January February for the en masse movement of, of people you know, working you know, going to a home working situation and I, you know so so focus with our with our IT team around laptop availability around technology to be able to work from home um, and I can recall, you know, bumping into our CEO's PA probably in early March and she asked me what I thought. I said, well, looking, looking challenging. Watch this face. My advice to you is whatever you need tomorrow morning, take it home tonight because we're expecting to get some urgent news from certainly UK government one evening saying, right, that's it. You know, you know work from home now. So those sorts of messages, I think, landed quite well with, with our business. But again, you know, planning on key risks. So again, I mentioned before, Charlotte, supply chain resilience was key. PP availability. Um, we we knew early on from our APAC experience that PP would be key here. We could see what was going on within healthcare environments, and so we wanted to make sure that our employees going into those environments had the right PPE and our other key workers. But we would not stockpile. Very very you know clear message coming out from CEO and from from the team. Look at what you need. You procure it, but do not stockpile anything because that will be required by, you know, by the government, by healthcare services. So looking to balance again decision making and make the right calls, not just for CBRE, but also for, you know, for, for, for nations and clearly globally. And I think, you know, that that message around adaptability, flexibility was key here and working with our clients, helping them implement their BCPs. And making sure that for our, you know, for our clients, their core processes were still running and helping them keep their show on the road. Absolutely. And do you think that as a result of this, I mean, um, that the the responsibilities of those who are involved in facility management, uh, do you think it has has raised 
the the profile of of um of this this you know this specialism and i know it's very it's a very broad area depending on what what you do as a a facility management type organization but do you think it has helped um you know that people have uh, uh value it more or, or can appreciate it, it more because quite often it's something that goes on behind the scenes and it these things operate and you're you're there to deliver for your clients and you know to do things as efficiently and smoothly as possible what would you what would you say your observations were um around that yeah i, I, no, I would hope Charlotte, like many things if it isn't seen as important now you know will it ever be and i think there's an absolute understanding of of the workplace um both home and at work but i think for fms you know Clearly, yeah, they they've got a job to do, and one of the things that that we were again focused upon as a as a business is not losing sight of our risk profile. So, you know, we our engineers, our FMs will carry out a range of services for our clients. Many of those come with a degree of risk, and we have to manage those risks, you know, on behalf of our people first of all. Along comes COVID pandemic, you know, and if we weren't careful, that would dominate all conversations, all focus and all, you know, all resources. So we had to make sure that we didn't lose sight of our existing risk profile. That was still managed whilst we managed our clients and our, and our people's, you know, COVID concerns. But I look at what our um, FM team did in our London HQ, did a, an amazing job, you know, from um, helping the building um, shut down in, in March through to helping us reopen in the summer, very carefully controlled situations, providing a COVID secure workplace, uh, did a great job. And, and that was recognised by many of us, you know, in, 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 the, um, in the senior team, Charlotte. So that, I think, is probably an answer to your question. But I think, you know, FMs as, 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 a, you know, as, a, as a profession as such, the value is clear. You know, last year, helping our clients um, look after their buildings, their premises, making them COVID secure, helping their staff come back into work in limited ways was fantastic. More to come, hopefully. I think as we go out of the pandemic and the vaccine start to allow the world to, again, to reopen up fully. But again, I'm going to talk about three core words here, Charlotte, again, you know, in this answer. But um, planning, flexibility and adaptability, I think, were, were key here. And, you know, I think FMs are front and centre of that. And I believe that they will be going forward as we start to get the world Hopefully back on its feet again. Absolutely, back to the next normal. And actually, that takes me to my next question, really, which is about the future. Um, and what um, what do you think it holds for the the health, safety, and well-being of the the people that you you look after? And what what key learnings are there? Uh, do you, do you think about for how we live and how we how we work? I think um, on on reflection. Charlotte, you know, the last 12 months have only reinforced vulnerabilities in certain certain aspects, but also resilience. And I think it's really underscored the importance of, um, you know, looking after the, the health, safety and well-being of, of, of people for those that needed it. Um, and and also the importance of, you know, a, a safe and secure workplace. And these two things go hand in hand. They're not separate. They are fully integrated. And so I think, you know, we're, we're fortunate for us. It's part of our business DNA. You know, we are a people based organization. And so, you know, the, the, the safety of our people, their health and well-being was never in doubt. I think probably it's, it's helped to shift the focus more to the your mental health and resilience um, elements. Um, but I think, you know, again, I, I, I mentioned the three words one more time without, without any apology. You know, flexibility, you know, adaptability and planning for the future are, are key here. And, and, you know, we saw from, from last year, you know, the world was changing. What was happening in, in, uh, APAC region in, in January, February was really taking, taking hold in, in, um, EMEA or Europe, you know, come, come February, March, April, US a little bit later on. So you could see what was going on. We could share good practices. We could adapt, um, those, those programs and those controls locally, Charlotte, to make sure they were right fit for purpose. Yeah, at that time, and, and we learned that one size is never one size fits all is never the right way to go. So really, be flexible in terms of what we were doing, and to adapt locally. And I, sh- I think we'll be seeing that going forward. And no doubt, we'll be seeing some some local variation. The experts are talking about living with COVID as you would do seasonal flu. So planning becomes becomes key. But I think I think you know as a as a profession, courtesy managers, directors, you know, advisors are 
centrally placed to really help CEOs understand fully the importance of their greatest asset, their people, and putting people at the heart of what we do as a business, both today and tomorrow. Absolutely. I mean, it's just so critical, isn't it? And uh, do you think that there will be changes in how we how we work? Um, are you seeing any any observations in um, perhaps what clients' expectations are? or maybe some of the working environments that you, you look after? I think, um, you know, undoubtedly, um, yeah, we, we, if you look at, look at our, many of our, of our clients, they're, they're reviewing their, their current portfolios, what, what they do with them, how can, and we are front and centre in those discussions with our clients to look at how we can support them in their changing business model. I think, um, you know, studies show, you know, many of our studies that we've, we've commissioned that are in public domain show that, yeah, there will now be a split between you know, remote working and office work. I think people are saying they want a blend of both rather than one or the other. And so I think, you know, it's, it's, it's up to um, management teams, up to my profession to understand the changing risk profile. Um, look at what at what a changing work workplace means, both you know in a traditional workplace, but also a home workplace. And in some respects, we've never been more connected through Zoom through Teams and so on, but also never be more remote. Um, and so it's important that I think we understand what remote working means to people. It means different things to people. And you know, I think we've understood that that one 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 person's quiet home office, where they can get their head down and do a, a good day's work, is somebody else's shared apartment, either with flatmates, family, young children, homeschooling. And so I think it's really broken down that sort of homework barrier which is a good thing in some respects, but we have to be careful, Charlotte, that we don't get that, that barrier, I think, really confused and we respect people's home life. I think, you know, if I go back a year ago, um, my commute daily was four hours round trip, so I was delighted to be able to use those four hours for, for, for COVID work. Um, I think what I'm seeing now is a year on, people are, uh, yeah, people are now booking time in during that commute, so the working day is extended. Um, and that and that's great. That should be a personal choice. And I think as a as as professionals, we have to recognise that if we're not careful, that working day will become ever longer. And so, you know, messaging around personal space, permission to switch off in the evening, um, permission to start at a certain time in the morning will be key. And I think again, you know, helping clients to adapt to new ways of working will be important. And I, I hope that CBRE, um can be front and those conversations to really help our clients with their new working world this year and, and beyond. Absolutely, and, and, and help lead on, on that, uh, that key area. I think you're absolutely right. The, uh, the lines seem to be coming um, more blurred. Um, and uh, I was looking at a, a poll recently um, on a social media platform, and there was a real debate going on about, do you prefer it or do you not prefer it? And certain people were saying, I prefer to be in the office. That's where people should be. And others were saying, I have no intention of going back. And I think there's probably a little ground there somehow. Or it's a, it's not necessarily a one size fits all, um, which is always, a, you know, we have to be mindful of, don't we? And um, I suppose my, my final question, really, and thank you ever so much for sharing your your insight. I mean, it just shows the, um, you know, the, the breadth of, of what you do, but also how, uh, you know, the agility, the adaptability, um, what you've had to do to uh, to make sure that everything is operating and incredible, um, you know, hats off really to your workforce who have kept on going, you know, in these difficult times. Um, and, and I know there are many other organisations around the world who have had to do the same. But um, so with all of the steps that you've taken, um, you know, we've had a, a you've shown an awful lot of detail with us about uh, CBRE's approach. Um, but which of these do you think will particularly help you become uh, more sustainable and more resilient in the future? Thanks, Charlotte. I think I think I've, you know, I, I've I've used the terms flexibility, planning, adaptability a lot so far. So again, one more nod to those terms. They're key to all of this. Planning is absolutely essential. BCPs you know, are, are, are key, clearly, and there's never been, I think, a better time to have robust BCPs in place across the business. But also for us as a client-serving organisation, 
you know, to make sure that our BCPs are fully tied into our client BCPs such that we can ensure for our clients we are helping them with their core business risks and making them resilient and therefore helping, helping them in their, in their programs and services. But I think as well, probably a recognition that I think we work well as, as a, a business cross-functionally. But I think, you know, looking back over the last 12 months, the pandemic has really cut across, you know, back office support functions as such. So my function, QHSE, finance, HR people function, procurement, legal, data privacy, commercial. You could see you know, writ large across all of our planning sessions, people coming in with supporting comments you know, supporting, um, you know, processes and programs to really make, hopefully, our business resilient, um, to help our clients, you know, provide their, their key services, help our, our frontline staff and our clients' buildings and premises to do their jobs successfully, Charlotte. So I think, I think, you know, plan it, be flexible, be adaptable, but really understand that, that, you know, from a sort of back office support activity, these risks are, are quite often um, multifaceted, complex, and so I probably call it an enterprise risk framework, I think is important going forward. And if that framework is embedded, managed and understood, it will help a management team, CEO and so on, make the right decisions for their business, um, support clients going forward. And it has to be great for, for us, great for our clients and make our business in the future, I would say, truly successful and sustainable. Thank you, Richard. Uh, a brilliant answer. And uh, that brings us to the end of our uh, questions today. So thank you very much um, for, for giving us your time and for sharing your insights. And uh, I wish you and all at CBRE um, you know, a great 2021 and, uh, and moving on to, into the future. Thanks, Charlotte. Right, so um, just getting our slides back up and running. There we go. Um, so thank you very much to Richard White for, for taking the time um, for us to, to take, uh, for Richard to take part in that recording. Um, and I'm now going to hand over to Kate Field for your um, live commentary. So over to you, Kate. Lovely. Thank you, Charlotte. And yeah, I mean, really fascinating to listen to Richard. Um, and his, his, his insights into the experiences that CBRE had. And I, I wanted to start by actually reflecting on, on those and, and starting with the, the comment he made right at the beginning was that, you know, as, as the a scale of the disruption from COVID-19 started to become clear, you know, he, he and his team reached out across the, the global CBRE um, network to to look at best practice to see what other parts of the business were doing and he said that you know actually in Asia Pacific in APAC region you know they they were already dealing with this and I, I just wanted to reflect that that's something that we have seen as well um, BC, uh, BSI sponsor a report every year um, from BCI the horizon scan report and that looks at what the biggest disruptors have been for the last 12 months and what the biggest disruptors will be for the next 12 months. And what's really interesting on, on your screen, that middle column is the disruptors for, for last year, but at a global scale. Um, and then the infographic that is on the right hand side is the, the disruptors for Asia Pacific, um, just just for Asia Pacific region. And, and you can see that, you know, for the rest of the world, the, the pandemic, that's what the non-occupational disease means in, in this context, um, was number one in terms of the disrupt, disruptor. But for, actually for Asia Pacific, it was only five. And I think that reflects that as a, as a region, you know, they've been dealing with disruptive pandemics for a number of years and therefore they have the processes, they have the resilience um, to deal with that. And I think it's important that we reflect, you know, taking, and I think a lot of organisations are at this point, you know, looking at what lessons have been learned and what they can take forward to the future. And I think, you know, we're not alone. Normally, somebody has been through these processes, these issues before us, um, and we have the opportunity to learn. You know, here we've got 
a region that is much more robust and resilient in terms of dealing with pandemics. Some sectors are, are also um, more geared up, although the aerospace sector has been very badly impacted, obviously, because of COVID-19. Actually, their processes that they have in place in terms of managing pandemic are, are some of the best. So I just wanted to reflect on that. And if we move on to the, the next slide, the other element that I, I found really important um, to, to hear Richard talk about, um, and we've heard this time and time again um, from our clients, is that uh, those organisations that were um, most able to be agile and make fast decision decision making were the ones that were more the most resilient um richard talks about you know he was having uh, leadership meetings every every three weeks and i think this is what which has been one of the biggest takeaways for me is that with covid19 we saw very much that you know the the response teams were breaking down those traditional silos and really enhancing cross-functional working <clears throat> You know, Richard talked about it, but you've got facilities management, health and safety, legal, HR, operations, all coming together to come up with meaningful solutions for continued to, to keep the operation, the business going and protecting people. And what's really important about those teams is, you know, they brought together expertise and relied on speed. You know, it wasn't about hierarchies and mass deliberation. You know, it wasn't about command and control. And I think, you know, this is really important. This collaborative working is, has been absolutely critical for organisations that have really survived and weathered the storm. And I think particularly with facilities management, that collaborative working, these cross-functional teams need to include the client, your clients, but also, you know, suppliers, partners, vendors, because, you know, it, in the world of facilities management, those, uh, the ecosystem, if you like, is very complex. And Richard touched on it towards the end. You know, he said it's, it's really important to align your business continuity plans with that of your clients. And I think, you know, I'd go a step further and say, also align it with, you know, your key suppliers and, and vendors um, so that you're all working and pulling in, in the same direction. And, you know, we we're starting to see and we, we certainly have seen this in some studies that we've done, which I'm going to catch catch on um talk about in a moment, is that, you know, the the organisations that were able to put in together that agile, agile structure and fast decision making um, were the most resilient. And, you know, if we look back at other crises, the financial crisis, and we always look through slightly rose-tinted spectacles when we do hindsight, where we'll always have some some bias. But actually, you know, the organisations that weathered that financial crisis at the time most effectively are more robust over the longer term, more resilient in the longer term. And I think that's an important message. So if we move on to the next slide. I just wanted to, I suppose, reinforce this point about um, flexibility and adaptability. And <laughs> I think these were a couple of Richard's key watchwords. And one of the things that we found, we commissioned um, some research uh, with the International University um, Cranfield to look at organisational resilience and what organisations need to do to be resilient. And one of the things that um, we developed was this tension quadrant, and it's really reflective of um, leadership teams' ability to um, split behaviours that are defensive about stopping bad things happening and those that are progressive, um, making good things um, happen. So, you know, this kind of um, flexibility and agility to be able to adapt and anticipate and respond to what's going on around you. And, you know, I think, again, what we've seen is the, the organisations that have managed this tension quadrant and have been able to flex across it are the organisations that have, have done um, the best. You know, organisations that have been too risk adverse, too defensive, haven't been able to take um, maybe uh, take advantage of the opportunities that the pandemic has brought. 
likewise organizations that have been a little bit too agile and, and maybe haven't thought about some of their governance and, and, and particularly things like the need to look after their, their people have perhaps struggled. So I think this is something that is, is really important to understand that, you know, for that resilience and you know Richard talked about it a lot and I think as organizations in, in, in facilities management in particular is it's the watchword does need this flexibility and if we if we move on to that um, Richard talks about a really good example of that sort of um, agility and flexibility when he talked about um, remote audits and remote inspections Within facilities management, you know, there's often a need to be carrying out inspections within uh, the facility, um, you know, for all sorts of reasons. Um, and obviously with COVID-19, we had challenges because they might have been locked down or obviously, you know, we were not able to travel or go into into those facilities. So we were started to, you know, use more and more remote audits. And Richard talks about the fact that that's something that we've done, BSI have been doing. And I think it's really interesting. Um, this was technology that we were using already. We were always, um, you know, we've been using remote um, audit and inspection technology for, for a number of years. But the uh, ability to upscale that to uh, support a global effort so that we were maintaining certification. So continuing to provide that assurance and integrity that comes with certification. You know, if I talk about in my area, health and safety, making sure that organizations were maintaining their health and safety management systems, protecting people was absolutely critical. You can think of that almost as a defensive piece. You know, that's about managing risk. But the ability then to be agile and do it in a way uh, using technology was something that worked very effectively. And, and we delivered over um, 100,000 remote audit days last year. And I think that's, you know, it's a really good example of kind of finding that balance between, you know, uh, integrity and, and managing the risk that's associated with you know, the, the certifications that you might have and the need for those and the ability to find a, a, an agile and innovative way to continue to manage those processes. So if we move on, I'd just like to reflect on some of the, I think some of the key learnings Richard's touched on, but also some of the key um, areas that I've seen um, come through over, over the last 18 months. Organisations that have prioritised their people have been the most resilient. And I can say that with evidence behind me. Another report that BSI um, does each year is on organisational resilience, looking at those elements that make up organisational resilience, which I, I touched on that we have. So we have a, a framework, a best practice framework about what organisation resilience looks like. And we go out around the world and ask organisations to benchmark themselves against that and also interview them and ask them, you know, what's worked and, and what has made them resilient. And, you know, one of the key findings from um, the report that's just been launched and, and Charlotte will talk about it and how to get a copy a little bit later, is that those organisations that prioritise their people were the most resilient. You know, it, it was a resounding um, finding. So I think that's really important to understand. Some of the things that we maybe didn't get quite so right we saw that mandatory safety inspections um, often got missed as organisations, as workplaces, facilities um, closed down, locked down. Um, maybe only parts of them were working and operating was we missed and started to forget mandatory inspections, um, safety inspections. So things like water, Legionella, um, fire safety systems, lifts, those sorts of things. And I think there are still some gaps in those processes. So that's something for you, um, and particularly in facilities management, to think about. 
Likewise, as organisations restarted or were maybe working with a reduced workforce, emergency situations weren't really considered. You know, did you have enough trained personnel to carry out evacuations or first aid? Um, how were you managing um, the concerns of first aiders in terms of exposure to COVID-19 if they had to treat somebody? How were you ensuring that your workforce who were in the building understood that they had to ignore social distancing while they were evacuating because evacuating is about getting out of the building, um, but then come up with methods for ensuring or, or keeping as much um, social distance when they were outside the building. So increasing the number of muster points, evacuation points, those sorts of things. We saw some real challenges with supply chain. Um, Richard talked about this in terms of making sure that um, his people had the right PPE. Um, but we also saw challenges in terms of things like hand, san hand sanitizers and cleaning materials. And that comes back to the point that you know, I've made and, and Richard has made about um, uh, sort of aligning your business continuity plans with your key suppliers. There are have been continued to be some real challenges around confidentiality. So obviously, if somebody is taken ill, you know, there there is often legislation, but also a, a, a moral uh, obligation to um, treat their their illness confidentially. Um, but where that individual became ill at work, you know, there suddenly was this process around potentially deep cleaning their workstation. Um, and by default, people would make the, the leap between the, the desk, the workstation and the person who ne normally sat there. So there have been some real challenges with confidentiality. And relatedly, kind of on the people side, some real issues around discrimination. So, you know, we un we know and we understand now that there are key um, demographics of people who are at um, higher risk of becoming seriously ill. And in good faith, we did a lot to try and help and protect them. You know, we said work at home or don't come into the office or, you know, any number of measures. And actually, a lot of that um, was discriminatory. And, you know, there was a lot of playing catch up. And I, I and I still think we haven't finished um, working that through, you know, the discussion around passports, COVID passports is fraught with issues um, around equality and discrimination. And it's something that, you know, is going to continue to be a challenge um, for us. IT infrastructure, so, you know, having enough hardware, software, but a lot, another area that a lot of organisations did, haven't, didn't really think about as they kind of, you know, took up, <laughs> took up, you know, working in the office one day and working at home the next was cyber security. And I don't think all organisations are on top of that yet um, and the risk that particular challenge poses. Richard touched on the fact, and I think this is something that's really worth um, reflecting on, is that, you know, a lot of the uh, most business continuity plans only cover disruption for a few weeks. You know, they, they think about the scenario of maybe a flood where a facility is out of operation for a few weeks, whereas, you know, with COVID-19, the disruption has been, well, we're, we're nearly 18 months in. So it's important that those those business continuity plans are updated so that you have kind of a sprint version, if you like, and also a marathon um, version is the, is the way I, I, I like to think about that. And relatedly, as you go through the process of reviewing your business continuity plans, I think one of the things, and I've spoken to a huge number of business continuity professionals over the last 18 months, was you know, they they were relieved to find that, you know, by and large, their business continuity plans worked. But they, you know, the ones that have been a bit more honest about it have said, well, they did work and that was great. But I think it was more luck rather than judgment. So I think it's that opportunity to kind of do a learning and a debrief. And as you do that, not only concentrating on what went wrong, but also what worked and really exploring why it worked. Did it work because all of the processes around it were really robust and did what they needed to? Or was it about luck? And I think that's really important, which brings us to the future if we move on. 
And I think there's a real opportunity to be bold um, and seize the opportunities that we have. But we've got to be um, um, empathetic. You know, we've got to understand for our people and are coming back to prioritizing people that, you know, change makes people nervous. Um, it's it's one of those things that can really um, cause psychological illness if we don't manage it very effectively. So it's really important as we seize those opportunities, we engage with our workforce, our employees um, and ask them, you know, what they're concerned about, what they want, what they see the future like, then ask them whether those changes are working, asking them what more we can do to help and support them. And if we if we don't do that, then I think more than ever, and we're already starting to see this as the economy picks up, is those if people will walk, they'll leave, you know, you'll lose that talent um, because they're much more focused on those organisations that are willing to look after them. Um, and I think it also gives us an opportunity to really engage uh, a much wider um, diversity of our workforce. And that's really important um, looking forward. And I think the other thing that I'd, I'd just like to say is, you know, we we picked up our laptops from our desk one day and we put them down on our, our kitchen table the next day. But we continue to work the way we'd always worked. We just maybe in a different place. We have an opportunity to completely reimagine the way we work and the way we deliver it. And I think that's a, an exciting opportunity for us to explore. But as part of that and coming back to people. We need to equip the people with not only the tools, but the skills, the mindset, the behaviours, the capabilities to work in this new world, whatever it will look like. Um, and again, if we fail to do that, then and if people fail, don't think they're being looked after. If they if they don't feel that they're being taken on the journey with the organisation, then again, you're going to risk leaving that losing that talent. And if we move on, I think one of the areas and, and Richard touched on this and, and Charlotte mentioned it, you know, the, the big debate around what the the future of smart working or hybrid or blended or flexi working, whichever term that you want to use, is is something that it's here to stay. It's just working out what that looks like, um, you know, and there isn't going to be a one size fits all. As Charlotte mentioned, you know, there, there'll need to be this hybrid approach. And as we think about that, we will then need to think about what the uh, the the workplace when people do come into it, what that is there to do and create a work a workplace that meets that need. So, you know, workplaces are going to be much more about when people need to come together to be work collaboratively. So it's going to be much more about, you know, collaborative and meeting rooms and, and those sort of spaces rather than individual desks. We're still going to, and you know, I think this this sort of technology is here to stay. So, you know, particularly within those collaboration spaces, you know, the always on video conferencing um, and asynchronous um, collaboration processes and technology are going to be hugely important. And we might see organisations smart start to move to small local hubs rather than large central offices um, as part of this move to um, smart working. And that provides some real opportunities. You know, it provides better opportunities for creating diversity within within the work um, workforce um, and obviously also opportunities for cost savings. And if we move on and start to think about what that future of some of those workplaces might look like, there's there's so much going on at the moment. I just thought I'd highlight um, two or three. We'll see a lot more, I think, of these sort of pods, individual pods where people can, can go and work. And, and one of the things that I saw were, were pods in uh, working workstation pods like this in a in a supermarket where, you know, individuals who were potentially working at home, um, but, you know, just wanted to get out of the house or maybe they had, I don't know, builders round or it's the, it's the kids holidays and the kids are being noisy. You know, they don't go into the office anymore, but they want somewhere else to work. Um, and I think, you know, there'll be a lot of innovative solutions about where people can maybe hire a pod for an hour to do some work. 
We'll see technology being used as part of this solution. So things like autonomous vehicles, um, you know, where you can drive a vehicle um, from your from your desk at home. Um, you know, this is something that we're seeing a lot um, within the broader built environment sector. Um, this is this technology is being used a huge amount. We're seeing robotics start to be used. And as an example on the slide here, you know, uh, a robot delivering food. And I think the use of robotics to minimize some aspects of, of human to human contact um, to manage the, the hygiene and, and transmission risk, I think will become potentially more common. And we'll see the design of workplaces evolve, you know, where we've put in, uh, you know, the retail picture, you can see there sort of almost the, the temporary perspex screen. I think we'll see workplaces starting to be designed with almost permanent screens. So the, the other picture where you've got the two people working back to back. And the other thing I'd just like to take the opportunity to talk about is the use of UV lighting for disinfecting um, spaces. This is something we've we've seen grown rapidly. Now, UV to disinfect um, has been around for a number of years um, for water systems and in um, closed air, air systems. But we're starting to see it being installed into office spaces in China. They've put it on buses. We're seeing robots that are going around hospitals with UV lights. Word of caution, there is no evidence available at the moment about the effectiveness of UV light on killing uh, the COVID-19 virus. There is some research um, that shows that the previous SARS virus, which is another coronavirus, does seem to um, uh, be impacted by UV light, but we haven't got that research for the coronavirus yet. Also, the effectiveness of that if you like, that disinfection um, system relies on a number of factors. And if we think about the, the image you've got there where it's being used in an office on desk space, if there's something like paper on the desk or if the desk is dirty in some way, then all of that will actually impact any effectiveness that there might be in terms of, of killing viruses where it is effective to do that. But most importantly, um, you know, organisations are, are so are being so fast to embrace this technology, they're not thinking about people. And with UV lights, um, UV ra radiation, there are some real issues in terms of the health and safety uh, for people. So it has, um, it could damage skin, it can damage eyes. Some of this lighting produces ozone, which can be a respiratory irritant. And if we move on to the last slide, that uh, next slide, sorry. That brings me to one of the key points that I'd like um, for all of you to consider. Do embrace the opportunity and this technology. And, you know, there are some exciting opportunities there. But please, please, please consider the health and safety risks first. What we're seeing is organisations, you know, <laughs> race to embrace this technology and they're not thinking through the implications for their people. And as we have heard and as the evidence shows in terms of, of organisational resilience, that actually the organisations that are most resilient are the ones that prioritise their people. And you can demonstrate prioritising your people by thinking about, you know, what the health and safety risks are of this potential technology before you introduce it into the organisation. That's sort of flex and certainly, you know, radiation that I talked about is a kind of a physical health and safety issue. But, you know, we've got to think much more effectively about how we help and support people's psychological health um, and minimise the, the risks of negative psychological health. I've talked about business continuity plans already, um, you know, longer term disruption, including your supply chain, including um, uh, cross-functional teams. Um, you know, so there's a lot there um, to think about. But in relation to um, psychological health, I just wanted to signpost you on the next slide to some guidance that is now available to help organisations manage those um, psychological risks. So if we move on to the next slide, 
we've got a new international standard that is out in its final draft now and will be published um, fully in the summer around June, um, which provides guidance on how to recognise these hazards that can cause psychological ill health and then provides practical examples of how to manage those based on a hierarchy of prevention. So I wanted to highlight that because we've got to continue to prioritise people and Richard talked about the fact that, you know, the, that that mental health, that psychological health has become much more important. And he used a really interesting phrase, you know, we, we're never more connected, but we're, we're also never more remote or isolated. And that's one of these hazards that can cause poor psychological health if we feel isolated. But also some of the other things he talked about, you know, the, 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 the extended working days, not being able to switch off, not having personal space. So this international provides guidance. And if we move on to the next slide, the, the last um, standard that I wanted to highlight specifically is ISO PAS 45005 on safe working during COVID-19. We had, we've had quite a lot of questions about how can we provide um, sort of assurance and reassurance to our people, um, both clients and employees, about being a trusted space. And ISO 45005 is designed to do that. It's about implementing safe working practices during COVID-19 to keep your people safe. And this was actually based on a guidance document the BSI developed last summer and it was so well received that it was fast tracked into an international standard and the PAS is publicly available standard which means it's freely available so it's available for you now to help and support you to look after your people. And on the next slide, I'm not going to go through this, but I've just listed some of the other key standards that will help in this space and are re relevant for facilities management. And I'm conscious I'm just over time, so I'm going to hand over to Charlotte to um, bring us towards a conclusion for today. Thank you. Thank you, Kate. And uh, yes, some very useful resources and obviously new things coming down the line in the not, not too distant future. Um, so just to bring to your attention a few additional uh, resources. Um, Kate played an instrumental role in helping us to develop um, the report that you can see on the screen there, the new world of construction. Um, which looks at uh, three key principles, um, a culture of change, prioritising people and strategic digitalisation from a health, safety and well-being perspective. And there is also a culture quiz where you can use to test the maturity of your own health, safety and well-being programme within your organisation. In addition, um, Kate mentioned two other reports, uh, the Organisational Resilience Index report um, which is where we asked more than 500 global business leaders how they felt they had survived, stabilised, rebuilt and thrived amidst the global disruption. Um, in addition to that, there is a benchmarking tool which enables senior executives to develop personal insight into the resilience of their own organisations um, and to compare this uh, performance with similar organisations. So um, when the, uh, the survey comes out at the end of um, today's session, uh, if you complete the survey, then obviously we will share links to these useful resources with you. And professionals on today's webinar might also be interested in the BCI Horizon Scan Report, which again um, looks at the disruptions from the previous 12 months and then also what those future threats might be that Kate mentioned um, facing organisations in the year ahead. Plus, um, today we are launching BSI Connect. Um, so for those of you who may be managing audits and incidents, um, directly and obviously to help create a safer workplace, you might be interested in this new technology solution. Um, it has all the tools that you need to help capture, manage and analyse data across your operations and your supply chain, which we discussed uh, a little bit earlier. So hopefully those will be useful to you. And now I think we've just got time really for um, perhaps one question, Kate, if that's OK, uh, but we will answer everybody else's um, in due course. So we have a question from um, Melanie, 
in the US. And she says, um, what are the best safety considerations in space design against physical threats um, and the psychological impact of the risk of physical threats? So any thoughts on that, Kate? Okay, so yeah, so there's some really good guidance, um, and particularly again thinking about um, sec other sectors that may be kind of that we can learn from. Um, one of the best sectors to look at is actually healthcare, um, and particularly things like A and E departments, where actually they've got to balance the ability to care for people who come in, but also recognise that particularly with A and E departments, you know, they might be dealing with people who are under the influence of drugs and alcohol, and therefore may be more violent. Um, and there are a, a number of physical security measures so if you if you've been into a and e departments you might notice that the the the, the reception desk um, may have a screen a lot a lot of and particularly at the moment obviously with covid nineteen but even before that but actually a lot of organizations don't like having that kind of physical barrier i'm going to say covid nineteen um, aside at the moment um, but those reception desks are very high they quite often come up depending how tall you are you know but your chest um, and Part of that is a security measure. They're designed to be higher so that people can't get over them so easily. And that's a physical security measure, but still allow, if you like, face to face contact. The use of CCTV is a very, very powerful um, deterrent. Um, so there are a number of sort of physical security measures. Again, you know, if you look in A&E, there's a reception area, but then doors into the treatment areas are locked um, and people are, are managed in terms of going through. So there are a range of, you know, sec physical security measures that you can put in place. And in terms of the psychological impact, there are, you know, there are huge, this is quite a long, complex area for, for such a, a short period of time. Um, there's, a, there's a couple of things that I'd, I'd like to highlight. Um, one, you need to train people to, um, particularly in things like de-escalation um, training, so that if they are dealing with somebody who's, who's confrontational, um, they know how to try and diffuse that situation become, before it becomes violent. And the other thing that I'd like to um, reflect on is, of course, you know, the trauma that people can experience if, if they are um, threatened, actually. There doesn't have to be physical harm, but of course, if they are physically harmed, sexually assaulted, verbally abused, all of those things can, can have an impact. And it is important that if people are exposed to an incident that they receive support, so particularly things like counselling support to help them come to terms with that. But is it also worth bearing in mind that quite often this impact can be cumulative? And, and again, you know, looking to the health service and A&E um, and the other emergency services is a really good example of this. You know, they will quite often um, potentially um, be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. It can come after a single incident, but quite often it's accumulative. So where people are exposed to this risk, either actual um, violence or potential violence over a period of time, months or even years, it can be an accumulative uh, impact. So when you're thinking about the, the psychological impact of violence, you know, don't just think about a single incident, think about the accumulative effect sorry that's quite an important one <laughs> for, for, a, wow. for a question right at the end sorry everybody <laughs> no, that, it sounds like a, an entire um, webinar discussion um, yeah maybe itself. we'll pick that up next time <laughs> maybe we will maybe we will yes okay so um just uh, i think we have really come to the end of, of today's session um so thank you to everybody for joining us and for listening in to um, our comments. Thank you very much to Richard White from CBRE Global Workplace Solutions for um, giving us his time to talk through uh, their experiences and, uh, and useful insights for people. And of course, thank you to you, Kate. As always, it's, uh, it's really interesting to hear your observations. Um, and I do hope that people have found today's session useful. Please do complete the survey that will now be coming out to you um, so that we can then make sure that we get all of these resources out to you in, in full uh, due course. And uh, we hope that you will join us again um, in the very near future. Thank you very much.